Welcome to the Pharma Forum podcast. In this episode, I spoke with the inspiring Raquel Izumi, Chief Operating Officer and Co-Founder of Vincerts Pharma, about her paradigm-shifting therapeutic mission. Raquel is seeking to improve antibody drug conjugate, or ADC, drug development, looking to conquer cancer by providing a safe, well-tolerated oncological treatment that addresses the current toxicities and side effects. In this recording, we explore Raquel's early days in academia and medical writing, as well as adding a book to the mix too, and we discuss how she chose to make the shift to industry in order to bring about tangible change for patients. Vinsax's resultant promising technology now coming to fruition. Tune in and be as inspired as I was. Thanks for listening. This is web editor Nicole Raleigh, and today I have with me Raquel Azumi, Chief Operating Officer and co-founder of Vinsax Farm. Raquel is on a mission to improve ADC or antibody drug conjugate drug development and conquer cancer with safe well-tolerated, and paradigm-shifting therapeutics. Welcome, Rebel. Good morning. It's nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the details of your mission, perhaps you could tell me, tell listeners more about your journey to this point, to co-founding Vincex Pharma, including the years since being a Howard Hughes pre-doctoral fellow at the University of California, Los Angeles, and obtaining your PhD in microbiology and immunology. Yes. So I think I would back up a little bit before actually getting my PhD thing before I went to graduate school. So between undergraduate and graduate school, I went and worked two years as a research associate at Amgen. Those were pretty formative years for me. And I think a really important meeting was I worked in the department of Joan Agri and she was responsible along with several other scientists for getting epigen approved. So I was one of the first recombinant proteins. And she had these really great stories about what Amgen did for filing that first BLA. I was old school. They had like trucks full of paperwork and such. And then she also told me what it was like to meet the first, some of the first patients that were treated with Epigen and what that was like. And I think that's really what started my journey. I, I wanted to do something with my scientific career that was going to help people, help patients. And when I went to graduate school, there was a lot of push to stay in academia. But I think once having had that taste of knowing that there's things that you could do where you could directly impact patients, that's really what drove me and got me interested in pursuing drug development. Okay, thank you for that. So that's not all sort of that's been going on with you, Raquel. Listeners might in fact recognize uh, your name from the recently published book, The Blood and Money, Billionaires, Biotech and the Quest for a Blockbuster Drug. I mean, it's quite a title. And in that book, um, it's detailing how you designed and implemented numerous clinical studies across various hematologic malignancies. So I just wondered if you wanted to talk a bit more about that. Yes. So it's, it's, it kind of actually comes full circle to what I said before. So when I finished graduate school, I actually didn't do a postdoc. I knew that I wanted to get back and do into industry. And I had a friend of mine who advised me, it, it's tough to get into drug development as a PhD. There's not a lot of entry. It's, it's usually much, much easier if you're an MD. But she recommended medical writing as a good starting point. And the reason for that, she said, was you get a real bird's eye view 
of what drug development's like. You work in, across all the different departments, you learn what everybody's doing, and you learn how drug studies are designed. You work on important documents like protocols, briefing books for the FDA, and filings, and so on and so forth. So that's what I did. And I actually ended up working for Amgen for several years. And the head of that medical writing department was actually the president of the um, American Medical Writing Association. So we all got certified. So it was really, you know, the basis uh, of what my career was. Then after that, after I left medical writing and went on to become a clinical scientist and then get into drug development, it seemed like every company that I went to, nobody could write. So I ended up the de facto writer for all the protocols and this and so forth. It, it actually has sort of been the cornerstone of my career, having had that basis in medical writing and regulatory writing and sort of that bird's eye view of how to design studies across indications was really valuable. And so when we started Asserta, that, I mean, I was definitely the go-to writer from the first IND through all the protocols that we wrote. And part of my other functions was, wasn't just medical writing, was uh, running clinical trials, running the clinical operations departments. So the, the nice thing is, because I have the breadth of experience, both from the scientific side to understand the science, the strategy side on what we're trying to do with the study in the first place, and then the operations side, where I've done everything from the ground up on operations as well at small companies, it makes me an incredibly efficient writer <laughs> for these important documents. The book doesn't go into that. They're just like, oh, yeah, she's just this great writer. But these things don't happen overnight. I mean, you build up this experience level and then it just, you know, ends up being very, very useful. That's quite, as you say, that's quite an evolution, Nicole. Um, You've got science, you've got strategy, you've got operations, your dab hand with a pen or a typewriter, if you will, keyboard, sorry, that's a little bit historic. (laughs) But (laughs) evolution also is something we can apply to the cancer treatment landscape. A landscape that is continuously evolving and ADCs themselves are presenting as a promising avenue that can preserve cancer patients' quality of life via ultra-targeted mechanisms of action. However, many of them that have made it to the market are accompanied by black box warnings due to severe dose-limiting side effects. So now sort of tunneling into the science of things, can you perhaps tell me a bit more about that? Absolutely. I think the concept of antibody drug conjugates has been around for a while. And that's very straightforward. So we've been treating cancer with systemic poisons, chemotherapies, and and it works. It's very effective for many patients. However, the side effects, as, as many of us know, can be very difficult for the patient and not just the patient, but the people that care for the patient as well, and can have long lasting side effects. I mean, it's not uncommon that chemotherapy used to treat one cancer today might evolve into a different and more severe cancer later. Um, So the concept of now being able to target these really potent drugs to only the cancer cell so we could spare healthy tissue has been around for a while. Interestingly enough, um, it's really been in the last five years that there's been like this burgeoning, you know, discoveries of ADCs that have really actually gotten approved, which is really wonderful. It's, it's, it's amazing that the science has come this far. However, as you just mentioned, if you look at many of the drug, the ADCs that are approved, they still have black box, black box warnings or pretty severe toxicities in the warnings and precautions, which means that we haven't, we still haven't quite achieved the promise of what an antibody drug conjugate is, which is take these really potent drugs, 
get them only to the cancer cell and spare the healthy cells. So there's much room for improvement for a very, very promising technology. Mm -hmm. And in that room for improvement, what's happening now, I hear, is that you're developing best in small molecule and antibody drug conjugates designed to overcome those shortcomings of current ADCs seen today. Is that so? Absolutely. That's exactly what our bioconjugation platform was designed to do. So we have our scientists um, from Germany, actually, our chief scientific officer and our chief development officer have been working with this for this for decades. They've, they've really come up with some incredibly elegant science to sort of solve some of the issues that we're seeing with current ADCs. So one of the things, so the, the basic premise is there. So we have, for example, targeted antibodies. Those antibodies need to target antigens on the surface of the cancer cell. You're trying to find things that are only on the cancer cell and not on healthy tissue. So that's step one. And so that's that's the basis there. And that's true across the board for ADCs. What we have that's very different than other things is, is the linker. That's a very important component of the ADC structure, right? So you've got the antibody, you've got this chemical linker, and then you've got the, the cytotoxin. We have uh, a linker that nobody else has, the legumine cleavable linker. Legumine is an enzyme that it only cleaves at a very specific sequence. And that particular enzyme happens to be more upregulated in cancer cells than it is in normal cells. So already, so now we've added a second layer, right? Now, aside from the antigen has to be on the cancer cell, now the enzyme that cleaves our linker is very specific and it tends to be around in higher levels where cancer cells are. And then our payload is really special. Most of the payloads out there, so most of the cytotoxics right now that are being used by ADCs are either microtubulin poisons or DNA poisons, and they're very, very toxic. Ours is targeting a protein that's only uh, present during cell division, so only when cells are actually actively dividing, and that protein is called kinesin spindle protein, spindle protein. So that means it's part of making the spindles when the cells are dividing. So it's transiently expressed only when the cell is dividing and our payload specifically inhibits that protein and nothing else. So we've, we've, we've really built in a lot of things to really try to design this so we're only attacking the cancer cell and only attacking when it's dividing. And then we took it one more level. So our payload, unlike a lot of other payloads, is an impermeable payload. We have something on it called the cell trapper, which means that once it gets internalized into the cancer cell, gets cleaved by legamine, is now free to inhibit kinesin spindle protein, it stays in the cell because it can't get out and it accumulates in the cell. So that's really important because like I said before, kinesin spindle protein is only transiently expressed. So if your warhead is there and the protein isn't, nothing's going to happen. But because ours can't diffuse out, it stays in there. So as soon as the cell goes through division, it's there and available to inhibit the protein that we're trying to inhibit. And then the other beauty of that, and this goes back, Nicole, to what you were saying about the safety side, is because it's impermeable, let's say the cancer cell dies, now you have free payload floating around, it can't get into healthy cells and damage them. So that's, when I say the elegant science that our scientists have been working on for decades, I really think that it is supports it. Just a bit. I mean, we really are talking about paradigm shifting therapeutics. Um, 
that's quite something. And I, I've also heard that you're in phase one trialing in this regard. Is that so as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. We just got our safe to proceed letter from the FDA. And we have a really wonderful team, incredibly dedicated and proficient team. Uh, within 17 business days of getting that safe to proceed letter, our team was dosing our first patient, which I think is just absolutely phenomenal. So mm -hmm. we're excited to have the drug in the clinic. We're excited to be able to share results um, by the end of the year or early next year, because uh, this is it. At the end of the day, incredibly elegant science is only as good as it, what it actually does in the patient. And so we're excited to see the promise of our technology coming to fruition. Absolutely. So talking about that sort of future, about developments within that future, as well as uh, expected and awaited for results, What's the oncological landscape, or at least the hematological cancer landscape, looking like, in your opinion, in a decade or maybe two decades from now? What's that future vision um, yeah. with positivity? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I mean, we've really come a long way. I mean, the book that you just mentioned actually talks about um, the work that myself and so many others did to help develop the Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Those were absolutely paradigm-shifting drugs. There's patients living so much longer now with chronic lymphocytic leukemia um, than they ever did before, and, and the drugs are fairly well tolerated. I think, though, if you just look at the face value of Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors, they basically you know, tampen down the disease, and because they are well tolerated, the patients just go on, and it becomes just like a chronic illness instead of a life-threatening cancer that they're going to expire from, right? Which is great, but I still think a lot of patients want to actually be cured. So my hope is that as we go forward in these next couple of decades, we continue to work on drugs that are actually going to cure cancer. And during the treatment process, um, they're kinder, gentler drugs that patients can thrive through their treatment instead of having to endure. That would be my hope, my vision for where we're going to be in the next 10 to 20 years in treating these patients. That sounds a wonderful vision. And I hope too that it comes to fruition. Thank you very much for your time today, Raquel. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Nicole. And so that concludes another episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find out more information about this episode, including a download link and information about previous installments of the series at pharmaforum.com forward slash podcasts. The Pharmaforum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher and Podbean, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharmaforum. Of course, don't forget to visit our website itself, where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins, and follow us on Twitter, or X nowadays, at at PharmaForum. That's all for now. Thank you for listening.